Today's reading is Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Then the Spirit led Jesus up into the wilderness so that the devil might tempt him. After Jesus had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he was starving. The tempter came to him and said, Since you are God's son, command these stones to become bread. Jesus replied, It's written, People don't live only by bread, but by every word spoken by God. After that, the devil brought him into the holy city and stood him at the highest point in the temple. He said to him, Since you are God's son, throw yourself down, for it is written, I will command my angels concerning you, and they will take you up in their hands so that you won't hit your foot on a stone. Jesus replied, Again it's written, Don't test the Lord your God. Then the devil brought him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. He said, I'll give you all these if you bow down and worship me. Jesus responded, Go away, Satan, because it's written, You will worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil left him, and angels came and took care of him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The story of the temptation of Jesus is really strange, isn't it? But in it, we discover three things. We discover a God who meets us in the wilderness. We discover a Messiah who overcomes the temptations we cannot. We discover the Word of God that turns our wilderness wanderings into a pilgrimage to God. The story begins when Jesus is driven by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil as he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. Wilderness, temptation, hunger, 40 days. These words echo the 40 years Israel spent lost in the wilderness on their way out of Egypt to the Promised Land. It took Israel 40 years to make a journey that should have taken about 20 days. Why? Because Israel was lost in more than one way. There's a way of being lost, you see, that comes from not knowing where you are, to be physically lost, to be overcome by that sinking feeling when you realize not only do you not know where you are, nobody else does either. (laughs) Almost exactly a year ago, I became more lost than I'd ever been. I was in the wilderness, we'll call it, in Costa Rica. I was on vacation with my wife. I had done my research. I knew the roads were bad in Costa Rica. They're mostly made of compacted dirt. They're frighteningly narrow. Sometimes there'd be a small river running through the road. Sometimes the road would be washed out altogether, which meant directions could change. The vehicle we rented came with a GPS, but we learned that GPS could not be trusted. We were traveling from Samara to Punta Islita. It's about a 15-mile journey or an hour drive. Both towns were on the coast, but the GPS directed us inland and upwards to steep, winding, mazing, perilous mountain roads far away from any sort of civilization. There's a certain psychology to being lost. At first, you're certain 
that you can still find your way, uh, confident that you'll, you'll get to where you're going with enough time and enough resources. You aren't really lost, you think. Uh, and then your perspective on reality and the whole world becomes totally distorted. Uh, the smallest things that might indicate that you aren't lost become very significant to you. Oh, well, the GPS says there should be a road here. Uh, things that tell you you are lost, it becomes really easy to ignore them. Well, there's actually a running river going through this road. Uh, there's boulders in that road the size of my head and plants uh, four feet tall in this other road. But it'll probably, one of them will take us where we need to go. Uh, reportedly, a hiker lost in New Zealand uh, recounted thinking to himself, it's awfully funny how in New Zealand the sun rises in the west instead of the east. <laughs> At some point, though, you realize you are absolutely lost. You don't know where you are. You don't know where you're going. Wandering is the name we give to movement when we're lost. You wander and you realize you've been wandering for some time now. Panic sets in. Desperation sets in. I remember thinking wild thoughts like, well, if something happens to our car, we have enough water and cliff bars to survive for a day at least. When you're lost, suddenly everything seems to be about survival, about life and death, about finding your way, whatever the cost. If the first way of being lost comes from not knowing where you are, the second way of being lost comes from not knowing what story you're part of not knowing who or what you belong to. It is to be lost spiritually, morally, existentially, to be lost in life, not to know where you're going, to feel like you're just wandering through life. Perhaps you talk about wanting to find yourself, to find your purpose, to find your calling, like they're lost keys you need to find to get where you are going, if you should even know. And in the meantime, you can't tell whether the steps you take are steps forward or backward. You are wandering in the wilderness, except the wilderness is your life. Perhaps at first, like I did in the Costa Rican wilderness, you think you're not lost. You're confident that the setbacks you encounter are temporary obstacles. They aren't impassable roads. You cling to whatever sign you can find that you're not lost. And you're blissfully inattentive to everything that suggests otherwise. But then comes that point. I am absolutely lost. And it's been that way for a while. In the wilderness in Costa Rica, we were finally able to trace our steps backward and find a different road altogether. But the horror of being lost in the wilderness that is your life is you cannot go back. You cannot turn back the clock and take another road. Uh, perhaps in your mind's eye, you have some idea of where you want to be at this point in your life, some map of your life, and you think, I should be here by now. But no matter how hard you've worked toward a certain position, it seems you can't find a place of work where you belong. No matter how much you've desired to find that certain someone, it seems the stars just won't align, and you wonder how long it will be 
if it will be at all. No matter how many doctors you visit, health remedies you try, and prayers you pray, that affliction bringing so much pain to your body just won't quit. You count your losses daily. No matter how much time passes since the death of that person you love so dearly, that person so significant in your life, the world is just different. You no longer know your place in it. You are lost. You pray to God, Lord, I would ask you to show me the way I should go, but I don't even know where I am. I've tried to follow you, imperfect to be sure, but I feel like I'm walking in circles. I used to think you had plans for me, but now it seems rather like I'm lost to you. Where are you, God? Come, find me, lead me in the way that's true, because I am tired. I can't keep wandering through this wilderness alone. I wonder if you find yourself lost in life. I wonder what wilderness you're wandering through now. The first discovery we make in this story is that Jesus is in the wilderness. The Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness where he wandered 40 days and 40 nights, where he was alone. And when he wasn't alone, he didn't have the greatest company, let's be honest. It was the devil. Elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus knows exactly where he's going. He sets his face like flint to Jerusalem. But here in the wilderness, there is no forward or backward movement for Jesus. Forty days of his brief ministry, he spends wandering alone in the wilderness. Why? If your prayer in the wilderness moves quickly from the question, where am I, to where are you, God, remember this. Jesus is in the wilderness, wandering with humanity. God is with you, lost in the wilderness. As if the bewilderment, fear, and pain of being lost in the wilderness is not already too much to bear, the wilderness is also a place of temptation, trial, and testing. The reason Israel was lost 40 years in the wilderness is because their journey was not only a journey from Sinai to Jerusalem, it was a journey from slavery to freedom, from sin to faith. What God wanted for Israel through testing in the wilderness was to learn trust, a trust that would make them truly free, a trust that would make them more fully human. In hunger, they were to turn to God for bread, in thirst, to turn to God for water, in uncertainty, to turn to a God who is unseen but present. God wanted Israel to learn trust so that Israel could bear the weight of its calling to be a kingdom of priests, to be a holy nation, to be a people who could show all peoples what it is like when human life is turned fully and completely toward God. But in hunger, Israel longed for the food of Egypt over the bread of God. In thirst, Israel tested God about whether God was really with them or not. In uncertainty, Israel created and worshipped idols made by their own hands to take the place of God. 
The wilderness is a place where your own mental, emotional, and physical resources are sure to run out. A place where your faith is sure to come up short. A place where you meet all the ways that you say no to God and to God's word, which is also to say no to life, to love, to lasting joy. It's one thing to find yourself lost through no fault of your own because of the brokenness of the world and the limits of human life. It feels like another thing entirely to be lost because of the harm you've done to yourself and to others, because of uncontrolled desires, prideful attitudes, foolish decisions, or deceitful words. What will God make of us lost creatures whose situation is of our own making, our own fault? How do you expect God to meet you when you're so acutely aware of your sin, so conscious of the pain you've caused others, so certain of your lack of faith, so plagued by guilt and shame? What does God do with people who have gotten themselves so lost? This is what the temptation story is about. It answers this question. God comes to us. God becomes one of us. God enters our wilderness wanderings. God faces the same temptations we do. In this story, we discover that Jesus overcomes the temptations of the devil where Israel could not and where we cannot. What you need to understand most of all about the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness is that it is about Jesus, not you. The temptation is about the mission of Jesus, not your morality, not your shortcomings. Jesus faces down the devil and destroys his works for your sake. This is part of the salvation Jesus enacts for us. This is why Jesus teaches us to pray Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. By overcoming temptation in the wilderness, Jesus delivers us from the evil one and leads us who are lost and wayward on a way to God. Before we look at the three temptations Jesus faces, allow me to say a word about sin. Sometimes it's easiest to know something by its opposite. What is the opposite of sin? The opposite of sin is not virtue. Uh, it's not even morality. The opposite of sin, we learn in the Bible, is faith. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 14, 23, everything that is not based on faith is sin. Whatever doesn't come from faith is sin. The earliest Christians were faithful to God, and for that very reason, they were regarded as immoral by the world around them, as atheistic, as incestuous, as shameful. The opposite of sin is not morality, it's faith, trust, and God. What is at stake in these temptations that Jesus faces? Is trust in God or trust in the devil? The ways of God are the ways of the devil. 
the worship of God or the worship of the devil. There is no maybe, there is no in-between, there is no gray area in these temptations. That is why temptations, at, at first glance, seem so trivial, actually mean everything for Jesus and his messianic mission. The devil goes for the jugular, aiming at the oneness between God and humanity, just like a seducer aims at the oneness between husband and wife, or a deceiver aims at the oneness between truth and language. The devil tempts Jesus three times in three places, and three times Jesus responds with words that come from the Bible, specifically the book of Deuteronomy, which is the memory of God's history with his people in the wilderness. If you want to follow along in your Bible at this point, I want to invite you to open uh, to Matthew chapter 4. The first temptation happens in the lonely wilderness where Jesus has fasted 40 days, and the text tells us he was hungry. Um, I'm hungry at 3 p.m. after I skip lunch. To be hungry after 40 days must be something else entirely. The devil says to Jesus, um, since you're the Son of God, Command these stones to become bread. The devil is subtle. Uh, the suggestion for Jesus to eat almost seems caring. Yeah, have some food. Um, but it has a more insidious subtext, which Jesus is aware of and captures in his response. In verse 4, it is written, A human being shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. What is going on here? Jesus is reenacting the story of Israel. In the wilderness, God taught Israel trust by allowing her to go hungry, that she would find herself fully dependent on God, the bread that God gives. God wanted Israel to know that the fullness of life God intends for her is not a full stomach, it's a life made full by the word of God. In the wilderness, the devil tells Jesus he does not need to hunger with Israel. He does not need to hunger with you. He does not need to depend or trust on God in the same way as us because he's the son of God. Jesus, you're hungry. Make these stones bread. But the human being shall not live by bread alone, Jesus says. After this, the devil brings Jesus away from the barren and lonely wilderness to the highest place of the temple in the center of a bustling city, the holy city of Jerusalem. There the devil tempts Jesus a second time. Uh, verse 6, he says, Since you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. And here the devil quotes scripture. <laughs> if that's not troubling to you, I mean, come on. The devil quotes Psalm 91, and in Psalm 91, God is the speaker. The devil says, For it is written, I will command my angels concerning you. They will take you up in their hands so that you won't hit your foot on a stone. If Jesus did not succumb to the devil's first temptation because of his trust in God and God's word, here the devil tries to distort Jesus' trust by using God's word. The devil tempts Jesus to test God under the pretense of trust. 
The setting of the scene at the highest point of the temple in a bustling city may suggest that a crowd would have been there to see the spectacle. Can you imagine? Jesus jumps off of a high place, heading speedily toward the ground while everybody watches what seems like certain death about to take place when all of a sudden, radiant heavenly beings appear from some other realm and catch him and set him slowly on the ground. Surely then, all the crowds who have been so unsure about Jesus and his mission to this point will know that the Lord is with him. Surely such a spectacle will help people recognize that Jesus is the Son of God. It almost seems caring and pious for the devil to suggest this to Jesus, doesn't it? But Jesus responds again with words from Scripture. Again, it is written, verse 7, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Trust in God is trust in the word of God. And what God says does not need to be proved or tested. Finally, the devil brings Jesus to what the text calls an exceedingly high mountain, which seems to be the center of royal authority and power. Notice, by the way, The Spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness. The devil takes him to the holy city and to the royal mountain. What do you suppose that means? I I don't know. I, I mean, that's just crazy to think about, right? The devil shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the earth, shows Jesus all the glory that could be his, and tempts him a third time. The devil says in verse 9, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world and their glory if you bow down and worship me. You could say that this temptation is the least subtle of the three. Worship the devil. Um, No. Why, Why would you think that would have worked? But this temptation derives its power from something else. And that something else is the same power behind all three temptations. The power is this. The devil offers Jesus the kingdom of God without God and without suffering. The devil, uh, the devil tells Jesus, you can use your divine power by your own will, for your own comfort. You could even use your divine power in ways that advance your mission. The devil, in effect, says... If you give men and women bread and comfort, they will follow you. If you perform mysterious spectacles, they will recognize you. If you bow down and worship me just this once and nobody will see, all the kingdoms of the world could be yours. Better for you to rule them than me, surely. The devil, in short, offers Jesus the kingdom of God without the cross that is ultimately what's at stake in these temptations. So what does it mean that Jesus overcomes the temptations of the devil in the wilderness? It means that Jesus goes to the cross for you and for me. Jesus is with us in the wilderness, wandering, lost for 40 days, and he overcame temptation for our sake there. But in going to the cross, Jesus carries our our lost humanity all the way into the life of God by becoming lost himself. 
The devil promised Jesus comfort, recognition, and control without suffering. But it's precisely by Jesus' sufferings that he enters into this human situation, straightens what is crooked in your humanity, and leads you on a way to God. The word Christians used to use to talk about the cross was dereliction, the utter aloneness and lostness of Jesus. What does God do with people who have gotten themselves so lost? Jesus becomes utterly lost, losing his life and losing himself so that he can bring all who find themselves lost with him to God. The third thing we discover in the wilderness, in the story of the temptation, is the word of God. Christians offer many good, but not totally complete answers to the question, why read the Bible? In fact, I wonder what answer you would offer to this question if you were asked right on the spot, why read the Bible? We often appeal to uh, the duty to read it, the morals it teaches us, the comfort it offers us, the strength it gives to us, the truth it tells us about God and humanity. Those are good answers. I suspect what's missing most in our answer is what is most obvious. Christians read the Bible because it's the word of God for us, the word of God spoken to us. Because to hear the voice of God, you need to hear the voice of Scripture. Because a fully human life does not come about by bread alone, or not by comfort, recognition, or control. A fully human life comes from hearing and living on every word that God speaks. In the words of uh, Russian novelist Dostoevsky, the mystery of human life is not only in living, but in knowing why one lives. The mystery of human life is not only in living, but in knowing why one lives. One of the problems besetting modern life is that we have lives we neither want nor fully understand. In the words of one contemporary theologian, as modern people, this is going to get really convoluted, but here we go. It's okay if you don't get it. It's hard to, uh, you'll see what I mean. Um, In the words of a a contemporary theologian, uh, we think we should have no story except the story you chose when you had no story. But to have no story except the story you chose when you had no story is to have no story at all. Christians are a people born into a story that is not our own making because Jesus has carried us with him through our lostness, through our wanderings, through the wilderness to the cross, and through the cross into the heart of God. If you want to have a life that you want, a life that you understand, you need to discover the word of God in the wilderness, a word that tells a story that contains all stories, In the words of another contemporary theologian, the oneness of God is the oneness of the story he lives with his people. Jesus overcomes all the temptations of the devil with scripture 
Every response to temptation begins with the words, it is written. Every suggestion that the life and power of Jesus be used to his own advantage is overcome with nothing other than the words of God. The words of Jesus to the devil are also God's words to us. A human being shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. The practice of reading the Bible, whatever form that takes, is something you do because you can't live without it. That is, you can't live the way Jesus lives without it. You can't resist the temptation to live for comfort, recognition, or control without it, not in the wilderness of our lives. The practice of reading the Bible sustains the beautiful risk that God calls you into by calling you into Jesus. The beautiful risk is self-giving love for others. The church is a creature that hears the word of God. And in hearing the word of God, finds its wanderings becoming a journey toward God, finds its fear turning toward faith in God, finds its wilderness becoming a temple where God can be found. The word of God is gospel, grace, and truth. It says to you, the whole story of your life, the story that gathers everything together about who you are and why you are alive, the story that brings to speech your deepest pains and brings to song your greatest joys, the story that opens up the depths of your humanity to God and to your neighbors, the story that fully and truly gives you a name is the story of Jesus. Thanks be to God.